The the November 3rd U.S. presidential election will be held in one of the most turbulent and chaotic periods in America's modern history. In fact, really, uh, of global modern history. Uh, This election now is only two months away. Uh, The country continues to suffer from the coronavirus pandemic with uh, what arguably is uh, one of the worst, if not the worst, outcomes in the world with over 6 million confirmed cases. There's also uh, a lot of strife with this months-long civil rights protest against police brutality and institutional racism. Uh, President Donald Trump right now is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is controversial in and of itself. Mass protests there erupted after the murder of a black man, Jacob Blake, an unarmed African-American at the hands of the police. Uh, Another pattern of a series of brutal actions uh, and uh, a condemning of violence by police against blacks. Uh, Some say this latest move, though, by Trump to be in Kenosha is an attempt to campaign in Democratic-run cities and states and uh, run on this uh, so-called law and order theme. Uh, We are going to get some political analysis on the uh, overall dynamics of the race as it stands right now. We're very pleased to be joined by Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizen and Public Affairs, Professor Grant Rear on the line. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, Professor. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. I just want to get your initial thoughts because we are on the heels of the Republican National Convention. Uh, We've had some... uh, Interesting press conferences and um, interviews uh, largely on Fox News by the president with some uh, comments that have left people scratching their heads, I guess, uh, par for the course. But right now, Trump is in Kenosha, despite the governor of Wisconsin urging him to reconsider this visit, uh, the idea that this would exacerbate tensions. Normally, a U.S. president goes into a hotspot, whether there's protests going on or there's some kind of strife, and uh, wants to convey a message of unity or um, uh, conciliation. This does not seem to be the case uh, this time around. Uh, what are your overall thoughts of this visit, and what do you think the intention is uh, for Trump, and I guess for the wider Trump campaign? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I think the president, and and he had done this prior to, to this most recent incident, has really doubled down on the law and order message. Um, this was seen really clearly when there were protests in uh, Washington, D.C. And so that is the message that he's going with, and uh, he's pushing that at every opportunity. I think looking back in history, what he may be hoping for uh, or counting on is that is that this election is more like 1968, when there was a lot of unrest and protests, and the country ended up electing the more conservative choice, um, in part out of those concerns about about stability in law and order. So um, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that it's 1932 and the country is ready to make uh, a very big change. Um, the other thing you have to bear in mind, you mentioned the governor asking him not to come out of concerns about uh, that adding to the unrest. Everything in this country right now is politicized. I mean, it it doesn't matter what you're talking about. You could be talking about your dog, and that is a politicized issue at this Mm -hmm. point in this country. So the Wisconsin governor is a Democrat. And so I think for, for the president not to go to Wisconsin because a Democratic governor asked him not to go 
does not convey the message about uh, strength and weakness that is important to him, particularly among his base. Right. So he, he kind of was really, I think, stuck at that point into having to go, because I think had he not gone, um, it would have conveyed, I think, from his perspective, okay. a weakness and a following of a governor's request or order in a way that just doesn't really fit the president's role. I mean, he's the president. He represents the whole country. He goes where he wants to go. And so I think that's the way that he viewed that. Yeah, I think most people would agree with the idea that uh, things have become so polarized and uh, the the tribalism uh, is uh, so intense that uh, he would have had no choice but to go. But I I would believe that even if, let's say, the incident occurred in Maryland and it was Republican Governor Larry Hogan or in Ohio and it was uh, Republican Governor Mike DeWine and and they both had requested Trump, let's say, you know, that. We're going to exacerbate tensions if you come, so maybe please reconsider. He still would have gone, right, even if it was a member of his own party, if he deems that uh, person to be, uh, let's say, a rhino or somebody who's not uh, sufficiently loyal to, to his agenda. Yes, I think that's, I think that's probably a fair, a fair uh, uh, assessment. But I think the fact that the governor was a Democrat just, okay. just added to it. Uh, and, and again, you know, put him in a situation where where he really had to double down and you know that's that's been his strategy going back four years you mentioned the 1968 strategy uh where nixon was able to uh win uh election there uh this was uh coming on the heels of um lyndon johnson the president at the time deciding not to run uh the the strife from the Vietnam War, uh, a lot of social unrest, uh, the height of the uh, civil rights movement, and uh, really mobilizing white voters to, to his advantage uh, to, to win uh, election. It, does that strategy, from the political science um, perspective, still hold sway in 2020, where the demographics have changed from, let's say, an over uh, 70% white electorate to now where you're getting, you're targeting a smaller piece of the pie in terms of what uh, a lot of people believe to be core's, uh, Trump's core demographic, which would be um, non-college educated white voters. And are there enough of them uh, to be motivated enough to go to the polls to give him that sort of electoral college victory, despite what a lot of people expect would be a popular vote loss. Yeah, that's a great point. And that is a problem for the strategy. I think um, two things might work in the president's favor, um, whether they uh, are strong enough to overcome the demographic problem that I think you rightly identify, you know, is an open question, and we'll see in November. The first is that his base, and it does extend beyond that that one demographic okay, that right. that you identified, but his base is very committed and very enthusiastic, and so there may be a uh, turnout difference that works in his favor. Um, the second thing I think that may help him is, and here is where I think the Democrats are giving him a bit of a gift. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the Democratic convention that we just saw recently, but also thinking about some of the Democratic activists that are getting the most profile in the country right now, and particularly attention from the media, they have emphasized identity politics very, very strongly. I mean, the, the first half hour of the Democratic National Convention on the first night 
was devoted exclusively to the Black Lives Matter movement in a very, very positive way. And so that message may start to make some voters in the United States beyond that group that you mentioned perhaps a little uncomfortable with the, with the Democratic platform and the Democratic candidate or a little uncertain as to where they're going and what the ultimate goals are. And so I think one of the possibilities is there may be a bit of, for lack of a better word, queasiness or angst among some voters that, again, if you circle back around to what I said about the turnout, may work in the president's favor. Because if you've got some group that are a little uneasy, a little unsure, particularly that group in the middle, and then you've got this group more to the right who are going to turn out and are going to vote no matter what, then he might be able to squeeze another narrow victory out of this. I mean, the, the numbers do not look good for him right now. There's no question about that. And if you were forced to make a bet on this election, I think you'd be wise to bet on Biden being elected. Having said that, though, this is not like a, a 95 to 5 probability here. I mean, it's much, it's much more uncertain. And so, uh, uh, and, and, and one, of the, one of the statistics I think that works most in, against the president is not so much the specific polling of, do you intend to vote for Biden, do you intend to vote for Trump? It's that the country thinks, the public thinks that the country is on the wrong track right now. And when you get that, poll result consistently, which we have been getting consistently in this country uh, in recent months and in recent years, that almost always bodes ill for the incumbent. That, that would indicate that people are looking to make a change. That is the one statistic that I would pull out that makes me think more than anything else that the president's in trouble. Right. And so what you're talking about, and I, I know that it's been overused as an expression, but uh, his ability to pull an inside straight in uh, 2016, <laughs> right, where he was able to win by a margin of about 70,000 points, uh, 70,000 right. votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and those three states crucial to his electoral college victory. Uh, when when you're talking about um, identity politics and an overemphasis on supporting Black Lives Matter uh, uh, and and that giving angst or uh, some queasiness to a certain segment of voters uh, aside from his base, uh, I, I think you're referring to suburban whites. But in, in 2018, didn't those voters go pretty strongly towards the Democrats, uh, particularly with the, the moderate candidates? And it did feel during the I watched the DNC as well, and it did feel that there was quite a bit of outreach uh, to those uh, so-called disaffected Republicans or never-Trumpers. We had guys like uh, John Kasich uh, speaking, Colin Powell. Uh, and it does seem like um, there is an attempt to build as wide a coalition as possible, but you do definitely need the energy uh, from the Democratic base, which would largely be supportive of Black Lives Matter as well. Yes, and I maybe my interpretation of what I saw from the convention may differ a little bit from yours. Okay. I take your point about having those Republicans there. I saw those as more exceptions to a different to a theme that was different. And the theme that I saw was playing to the Democratic base, trying to get them as enthusiastic as possible. I just looking at it putting, you know, putting a hypothetical Democratic strategist hat on, my concern would be that they're overplaying that hand 
to use your to continue with your metaphor of poker, they're 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 overplaying that hand, and it could backfire a little bit on them, particularly in those states that they uh, are likely to need. And so, um, I and and I've read some other things about the strategy of the Democrats at this point is to be looking at other states around the country yeah. in case they don't get those upper Midwest states that they think they need. And it just, it, from a strategic standpoint, I'd have a concern about that. I, I, I think it has some dangers attached to it. I can understand why they're doing it, but, but, but I, think, I think they may be giving the president an avenue here um, that they don't have to. Right. I, I, I know that there has been an argument the other way. Uh, I, I, addressing the concerns of um, identity politics or uh, uh, being supportive of Black Lives Matter somehow alienating um, certain voters, um, particularly white voters who might otherwise be uh, supportive of uh, the uh, Democratic ticket. And and what you're saying is that the idea that, let's say, these um, increasingly rural white Midwestern Rust Belt states like uh, Wisconsin, um, and, and if you want to count uh, Michigan along with that, Ohio uh, largely having gone red, but uh, that continued alienation of those voters in turn with the, the what's deemed to be um, racially tinged rhetoric by Trump and his supporters has uh, actually widened the playing field to put states like Arizona in play where uh, Biden has been ahead in the polls uh, for quite a while now, even putting certain states like North Carolina or maybe even Texas, although that uh, maybe be a a, a, a little bit of a reach where uh, these states are not quite as solidly in the red column as possible. What you're saying is that is um, a nice uh, goal to have to expand the the playing field and the uh, avenues of victory, but it's risky in that you you still you would prefer them to go to their uh, original kind of uh, preferred blue wall, which would include Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, etc. Yes, and then to put it and to put it just in a sentence, I think. I think that if Biden had stayed the candidate that he was prior to the primaries, he'd be in better shape right now. It's, he's, he's tacked to the left, and he's embraced a lot of the identity politics, and I just don't know whether that will blow back on him. Here's, the, here's sort of the perfect storm that could sink the Democrats. You take the stuff that we've been talking about so far, and let's just say that it does, it does have a little bit of an unintended uh, effect on a large group of white voters in particular. Um, then you continue to have some good economic news. Not all the economic news that's coming out of this country right now is bad. There have been some good um, signals on um, jobs, and there's been some good signals on wages, and there's been obviously a complete rebound in the stock market. Um, and then let's imagine that a vaccine is announced in October. See, then you've got some things that are all coming together, and, and you begin, I think, to have the possibility of doubt and unease and angst in some of these voters in the middle who had been thinking they were going to vote for Biden. Do they really want to make a change? Has it been as bad as they thought it was? Uh, has, the, has the reaction and the response to COVID-19 been the failure that they originally thought it was? See, it beca- it's, it's, it's possible to see how this could kind of swing in his favor in the next couple months. I don't think it's likely. I wouldn't put money on it. 
but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. either. Yeah, I, 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 we shouldn't li- <laughs> over-litigate this. Uh, there is the uh, counter-argument that uh, one of the failures of the Hillary Clinton campaign was that she did not uh, energize her core base in, uh, enough, it, which includes uh, the black vote uh, to the extent that uh, Barack Obama successfully was able to do with his coalition in 2008 and, and 2012. Right, the turnout, uh, right, yeah. The, which, the, it, the turnout difference hurt him, yeah. Yeah, and so there, there's him, yeah. that uh, mindfulness uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, support for, for the protest movement. Uh, let's go back then to Trump's strategy, because I, I think bottom line and what you're referring to is that Overall, uh, we can talk about all of these other issues, but it it is going to be largely centered on the coronavirus pandemic, uh, the perception of how well or uh, incompetently uh, the Trump administration has handled it so far. And uh, although maybe the outside world looks at the U.S. situation and feels that um, <laughs> it has not been handled uh, very well, uh, but uh, you say uh, there could be these so-called October surprises, um, uh, a new vaccine uh, announced uh, right before November 3rd, um, some positive economic numbers, uh, some some job figures that, that uh, they could probably hang their hats on. And so those are going to be factors um, that will be going forward. It, it's it's going to probably tighten up and be a close election, Professor. The question is, how tight and how close would this election have to be? Uh, I, I, we don't even have time to address the issues of the post office and, and, and uh, mail-in balloting and all, <laughs> all, all of that stuff. But right. if it's a close election, uh, which a lot of people expect it to be, and Trump loses narrowly, there is this fear that he, uh, along with um, people like Bill Barr, the attorney general, will now try to call into question the legitimacy of the election and uh, the biggest fear being that he might simply refuse to leave office. Is that even something uh, within the realm of possibility? You know, it's within the realm of possibility, but I do not think it is likely. Now, I have been surprised before. Yes. uh, More than once uh, by this president. But I do not think it is likely. And I will go back to 1968. In that election, or I'm, so, I, uh, I'm sorry, I want to go back to 1960. I want to go even further back. In that election where Nixon was running against Kennedy, there actually was good evidence of voter fraud in the state of Illinois, and in particularly the city of Chicago, mm. which made the difference. It was the difference between Kennedy winning or Nixon winning. Nixon had the opportunity to make an issue of that. And, you know, he was known as the trickster, Tricky Dick. I mean, he did not have a reputation of being a particularly ethical campaigner. He decided not to do that. And his decision was based on it wouldn't be good for the country. I still think that if we get to this situation, Trump will not go down that path. Now, I may be surprised but I really do not think it will come to that. The other thing I would say is I also think that some of the excesses of this administration that have not been in the spirit or the letter of democracy and the rule of law, uh, I do not think pose an existential threat to American political institutions. I think the idea that they do is a bit overblown and slightly alarmist. Is it a good thing? No. But I do not think the fundamentals of the American political structure are being put at threat. The threat is coming from the degree of polarization that we are living in, and that has been building for 40 years. And that is something that we do need to 
uh, do something about and figure out a way to do something about. And I don't know what the answer to that is. It's not coming anytime soon. Uh, got 30 seconds left. So as it stands right now and, and uh, with what you have uh, kind of thrown out as caveats, uh, you, it, it, 538 uh, kind of gives Trump a 30 percent chance of victory, which alarms people because that was exactly the same odds uh, uh, during the uh, 2016 race with uh, Hillary Clinton. Would you would you kind of put it similarly? Yeah, I might go. I might go thirty-five, thirty-five to forty, wow, somewhere okay. between thirty and forty. I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, we're looking at. Uh, I mean, veering. Uh, if if we're going on the high end of a forty percent, almost a coin flip election as it stands right now, despite all of uh, what uh, we've been seeing and experiencing over the past uh, four years, uh, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, and obviously, the dynamics of this race uh, will be changing uh, within the next two months before November third. Professor Arir, thank you very much for joining us, and I hope that we can uh, have you back again for another discussion as the election approaches. I would like that. I enjoyed the conversation. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was uh, Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, Professor Grant Rear. We're going to be back with part four after another check of traffic and weather.